This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. This week on the Best Friends Podcast, it's all about roadblocks, barriers. No, I'm not talking about driving in the Midwest during summer. I don't mean literal barriers. I'm talking about the things that exist that prevent us from saving as many lives as we can. And whether or not we created the roadblocks, it's really up to us to identify them and break them down. And then we have to ensure that we're effectively managing it for lasting change. I'm John Dunn. It's August the 13th. It is really hard for people to change. It's hard for organizations to change, right? You're asking people to move their behavior from one state to another. You're causing disruption. What you really want to get them to is moving from that disruption to exploration and eventually rebuilding. It doesn't matter whether it's adoptions or it's an SOP, a policy that's changed. That's Kimberly Elman, National Outreach Volunteer Programs Manager at Best Friends. We'll hear more from Kimberly in a bit about how she works with organizations to create lasting change. Best Friends has always understood that this work is better when all of us are working together. So in that spirit, a number of years ago, we created the Best Friends Network. Now it's made up of public and private shelters, rescue organizations, organizations that focus on spay and neuter. They span all 50 states. The network team creates all of this incredible content and resources, things like operational playbooks, Want to start a foster program but don't know where to start? There's a playbook for that. There are guides that'll walk you through step by step and a ton of other things as well. I mean, the network offers town halls, editorials. If you want to get a grant from Best Friends to expand your life saving, you can sign up to be a network partner. So much phenomenal stuff, all intended to support you as you save lives. And yes, the podcast is also part of that. We've got this roadblock discussion happening across all of the various network platforms over the next couple of weeks. We're going to talk about some of them. How do we identify them and how do we get them the hell out of the way? Now, the podcast today is going to focus mostly on the latter part of that. Once we've identified something that is holding us back, then what? Now, I don't need to tell you that change is hard, man. There are people who spend their entire lives, careers, devoted to teaching others on how to make it through difficult times. So changing our approaches to life-saving can be really hard, especially when it's changing practices that we've not only done for a long time, but that we've done because we thought it was in the best interests of the animals. Change is hard. We all know that. Um, Change can be tough, but ultimately we're making these changes for the good of the animals. And, you know, staff, volunteers, the public, they can come along with us or they can choose not to, and, and we, we got to be okay with that. That's Rich Anderson. He's the executive director and CEO of the Peggy Adams Animal Rescue League in Palm Beach County, Florida. We are uh, the largest and oldest um, animal welfare organization in West Palm Beach, Florida, or in Palm Beach County, um, which is geographically the size of the state of Delaware, just to give you a sense of how large our community is. The organization has been around for a long time. We were incorporated in 1925, um, we are a managed admission uh, shelter servicing uh, dogs, cats, puppies, and kittens here in the community. Just like every other organization, Peggy Adams has evolved. Today, their adoption process a little bit different than it was just a few years ago. When I arrived in 2011, we were still using a lot of the old school adoption processes. You know, I think what's typical, um, we were no different. 
is you find yourselves one day with an adoption application that is just pages and pages and pages and pages and pages. And I don't think anyone knows how they get to that point. They just keep adding to it. And that's where Peggy Adams was. But then you realize that the pages and pages and pages aren't about finding the right match, qualifying people. It's really about finding reasons not to adopt an animal to someone. The organization moved towards open adoptions because we we saw the value and we saw the opportunity and we saw the we saw how important it was. Well, we you know we I think we saw the downside to the process that we had been maintaining. And we had talked to obviously other organizations about the open adoption process and just heard great things. And bottom line, we want, you know, we needed to save more animals. And the old way was preventing us from saving as many animals as, as we could. They identified that roadblock they put in their own way. All the things that restricting adoptions based on whatever, pushed people away from the organization. It's getting rid of those barriers and just making it easier for people to come in. And, you know, people who want to have a pet, there are plenty of places for them to get a dog or a cat. So if you are not ready to work with somebody to find their next dog or cat, they're going to find another place. And the last thing we want is for people to, you know, go online and purchase, you know, a puppy mill dog or uh, go to an unscrupulous breeder or what have you, you know, they they should be able to get the pet that they want uh, from an animal shelter like Peggy Adams. So at that point, it's a question of like, how, right? I mean, cool. We'll just rework the adoption app. Let's say 10 open-ended questions and we're done. Well, maybe it's not quite that easy. And it, and it was a process, you know, I think anybody who makes a change like this understands that is is a process. And in our case, and I think what is typical, the process is mostly about convincing your staff and your volunteers that this is the right path to take. As with any change within an organization, you have to inform, help people understand the why, and build consensus. Once we were able to educate our staff and our volunteers and explain to them the rationale and, and the whys. It's a great opportunity for the public to come into a shelter that has an open adoption approach, um, but it ends up being extremely helpful to staff and volunteers as well, because they're not, you know, they're not in interrogation mode, which more often than not happens when you're using old school approaches. So it, it does take explaining exactly what open adoptions mean that it's not just a free-for-all, come on in, grab whatever cat or dog you want and go home. It's so much more than that. Once they understood why we were making this change, some were hesitant, but very quickly they embraced it. So how did the new open adoption approach pay off for Peggy Adams? You know, once we got over the hump with our staff and volunteers with open adoptions, you know, the results were very quick. I mean, we, we, we've gone from uh, in 2011, I think adopting out 2,400 animals. And this past year, we set a new record with you know adopting out uh, more than 6,000 animals. You know, we anticipated more returns, so we've been somewhat surprised that our our return rate has dropped. Uh, an animal being returned to the shelter is not the worst is <laughs> not the worst result of an adoption. So you know, and that's another message that, particularly with with new staff, is emphasizing that. Right. So the fact that it didn't work out, it's no big deal. You know, Rich emphasizes that change isn't easy and it's not always popular, 
but it is worth it. You know, when you're making cultural shifts, and we've done it on a number of occasions here from, you know, our approach to pit bulls to forming a hand-in-hand partnership with the municipal county shelter, which um, a lot of people didn't want to see us do. What I've told people from day one, as we were going through these cultural changes and philosophical changes as an organization was, we are going to make this happen. And people, staff, volunteers, they are going to choose to either sit with us on this train that's already heading down the tracks, or they're going to choose not to. And that's fine. Now, to look at a different way we can manage change, managing your staff and volunteers, I talked to Kimberly Elman, manager of National Outreach Volunteer Programs for Best Friends. My team works with network partners all across the nation. We serve as consultants and trainers, and we help them better recruit, onboard, train, engage, and ultimately retain volunteers to help drive their life-saving mission. I think you know from our stake in the ground with No Kill 2025, we can't do it alone. We need our partners to help us get there. And none of us have enough time or hands. And so volunteer programming and effective engagement of volunteers is really what's going to get it done for all of us. Kimberly, the work you do and how we approach volunteer management, I'm interested to know about that uh, because we've come a long way right? Like our understanding of how to manage volunteers. I mean, volunteers are the same, uh, meaning someone says, I care about what you do. I want to be involved. And here's my help, right? It's the same as it's been, but how we recognize how we use volunteers more effectively, like our understanding of that, that's come a long way. Correct. What I always try to encourage the shelters that we work with Um, through the department is, you know, a lot of times we see volunteers, we see two primary issues. We see volunteers who come to the shelter to pet cats and walk dogs, but that's kind of where it ends, right? Or we have volunteers coming into the shelter. I hear this all the time. We have no problems recruiting volunteers, but we have no retention after six months. And so those are the two biggest challenges that we've identified with the shelter partners that we work with. There's a variety of things that volunteers can do above walking dogs and petting cats. We always like to tell the partners, volunteers can do anything that anyone else can do, right? Um, And it's not about replacing the staff in your shelters with volunteers. We're not looking to talk any staff members out of a job. It's about identifying the gaps in your current sheltering processes across each department, and then recruiting and matching the right volunteers with the right skill sets to those opportunities so that you have enough hands to get the job done. Your staff have less compassion fatigue and burnout and turnover, right? Everybody's going home happier every day and you're saving more lives in the process. So let's move now into change management strategies specifically. Volunteers are giving more than time. They love animals and the time they spend. And would you agree that volunteers, they're basically staff? Absolutely. Okay, so let's be honest. I've known a lot of volunteers in my time that are out there putting in more than some paid staff straight up. Yeah. So when we identify those these roadblocks and make changes that are really going to affect organizational operations strategy, so we're moving those roadblocks, we can't forget to talk to them. Absolutely. We always tell the shelters that we work with that 
it's it's moving the culture, right? Change management is changing the culture inside a shelter. It's moving from us versus them, staff and volunteers, to we. That's how you get to no-kill and, quite frankly, stay at no-kill. I don't have to tell you. It's one thing to get to no-kill, right? It's another thing to stay there. It's kind of like losing weight. It's easy to lose weight, not so easy to keep it off, right? It is. It <laughs> so- is. Feel free to share those tips with me. I will. And so... Oftentimes when we start working with the shelters, what we identify is there's a cultural challenge, right? There are culture issues. You can't improve your volunteer programming and create effective volunteer engagement if you don't already have effective staff programming and engagement. We can't teach the shelter staff to consistently train volunteers to do the same job each and every day. So if John comes to training on how to clean kennels and walk dogs on Monday and Kimberly comes on Wednesday, we should be trained, even if it's a different staff member, the same, right? Minimize that confusion, give them confidence in what they do. But if the staff haven't been consistently trained, if the staff aren't effectively engaged, how can we expect that to happen on the volunteer programming side? And so I often see there are some staff engagement issues Um, when I start getting into volunteer engagement issues and how to expand that. Um, The two are very closely connected. There's only a couple of HR differences really between how you would manage and engage your staff and how you would manage and engage volunteers. Continuing on that kind of line, the one thing, better or worse, uh, and a disclaimer, as always, the views of John Dunn don't necessarily represent the views of Best Friends Animal Society. (laughs) Hopefully we're not far off, but just in case, I think volunteers grow such a deep connection to the organization. They feel like staff, they're treated like staff, they invest time certainly, and and sometimes a lot of money. You know, I talked to Rich at Peggy Adams about open adoption. So using open adoptions as the example, you know, maybe people think it's going to like harm animals. They disagree vehemently, but maybe unlike staff, they don't feel uh, constrained, I guess is the word. They don't feel like you know, they have more freedom of expression because they're not staff. Yep, absolutely. So when you're talking about change management, communication is huge. You have to constantly and consistently communicate. People don't want to hear about something off the cuff. They want to hear it from leadership. They want to hear it up front before that change happens. And that goes for staff too. Really anything I'm saying relative to volunteers can be applied to staff. Like I said, the two are so closely interwoven when it comes to getting to and staying at no kill. Um, And the research around volunteer engagement actually supports that. It is really hard for people to change. It's hard for organizations to change, right? You're asking people to move their behavior from one state to another. They're used to the status quo. You're causing disruption, right? What you really want to get them to is moving from that disruption to exploration and eventually rebuilding. It doesn't matter whether it's adoptions or it's an SOP, a policy that's changed, right? Or you're starting transports and you're going to engage staff and volunteers to do that. But communication is absolutely key. People want to be involved in the process. Adult learners, if you look at adult learning theory, they need to know why you're doing something, right? You have to create a sense of urgency around why you're doing something and you have to effectively communicate that. And they want to know why if you don't take the time to explain that. Again, not just to volunteers, but staff, 
it's going to be a problem for you. You should always expect some resistance, right? Not not 100% of people are not going to be on board all the time with everything you do, right? If you can get 80%, you're pretty good. But you've got to start by engaging your volunteers and allowing them the chance to explain why you're making this change and give you feedback. That's how you start an effective change management process. If you don't do that, and again, this applies to staff too, you're going to be met with resistance and there's going to be, you might see some nodding heads, but you're going to lose people. And even if you don't lose them in terms of retention, like the volunteer leaves the building, you've lost them mentally and emotionally. They're not as invested anymore. So it's not a win for the animals. It's certainly not a win for the shelter, nor is it a win for the staff and volunteers. There's a lot of fear in our industry to opening the door, pulling back the curtain. You know, all it takes is like one situation, one angry volunteer, somebody causes a ruckus, whether it's warranted or not. Mm -hmm. And just instinctually, we want to recoil. We want to close the curtain. Absolutely. But let's say I followed your advice. I communicated. I got feedback still made that decision to go to open adoptions and it turned into a nightmare. Facebook, city council getting emails, people just pissed off that we're doing it. Then our brains tend to go to the, what can go wrong. Right. And I see a lot of folks in animal sheltering struggling with personal challenges of relinquishing control. It could get out of hand. It could go the wrong way. Right. First, you have to get out of your own way. You have to believe that there's the potential for positive outcomes. We're not going to keep doing things the way we always did them just because we always did. That's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So first, you have to psychologically get out of your own way. And that starts with leadership at the shelter, John. I'm serious about this. If leadership is not invested in really seeing that things can be done differently, not only in life-saving programming, but with volunteers, it's not going to have the trickle-down effect. It's just not. It's not going to flow to the middle managers who are then going to communicate it to the frontline staff and the volunteers. So it starts with leadership getting out of their own way. Once you do that, what you want to do is you want to put together a group of internal team members who can help drive the change. You need to communicate the vision of what you're trying to do, but you have to have a strategy too. And I like to recommend putting together team members that are a mix of leadership, mid-level managers, frontline staff, and even volunteers, right? So you're kind of pulling from all the different pots that work inside the shelter. You really need a mix of people that can not only communicate a vision, which leaders are oftentimes extremely effective doing, but they don't have the time to strategically implement. So you need that team to be able to do both. These also need to be people that internally are well-respected and trusted, that are open-minded to trying new things and can effectively communicate and collaborate with others to get there. That's how you start. Then you start asking everyone for feedback. So again, changing an SOP that affects volunteers, you'd want to ask your volunteers, you'd want to call a volunteer meeting and say, we're changing our adoption policies. How do you feel about this? Get their feedback. I feel like volunteers should always have a voice. They don't necessarily always get a vote, right? Because sometimes from a legal and risk liability perspective, you can't make decisions based on recommendations that they have, but they should always have a voice. Again, it comes back to that engagement. You collectively take that feedback and then that internal team or guiding coalition will then drive the strategies and the step-by-step process 
that's going to get you from the status quo and disruption phase to the rebuilding, right? And finally, acceptance. There are some pretty tried and true change management strategies. I mentioned earlier in the episode, like there are people who devote their entire lives to this, right? You know, there are these models. Uh, if you Google change management, the results are like so overwhelming. Can you just run me through, I guess, I don't know, basic framework steps of change management? Yeah, no, in general, change management moves you in four stages, right? You're, you analyze a process. What do we want to change? And you move from the status quo, right? You identify your gaps in that process. So it could be open adoptions, for example. So you analyze your adoption process. You want to move to open adoptions, right? You probably come up with a percentage of of animals that you want to increase moving out of the shelter through this open adoption model, right? So you go from status quo to the disruption phase, which is where you're giving everybody anxiety about this change and writing new SOPs and coming up with new training and et cetera and so on. Then you explore that. That's when you're testing out that initial change in the pilot phase, if you will. And then ultimately what you get to is the rebuilding from there, which is your finished product. But there's a lot of steps along the way. That's kind of the general overview of the, there's so many change management models out there. <laughs> there's hundreds of books, but that's basically what it involves, regardless of which model you follow. Okay. So we've shifted to open adoptions and without any reason for it, people are charged. They're fired up. Uh, you know, a couple of our more, shall we say, vocal volunteers, uh, they've sort of whipped up everyone into a frenzy. How do we stay the course? We know open adoptions are the right thing. We know it's going to save lives. Like we know it's going to be better, but now it's starting to gather steam, right? They've got a couple of board members are starting to say, you know, wait a minute. Yep. And that's the hard part. That's where the change management model typically falls apart because of public pressure in whichever way, shape, or form that comes or who it comes from. I think it's important, again, that's, that comes back to that guiding coalition or that team that's made up of leadership all the way to frontline staff and volunteers in between and, and people who serve as voices, trusted voices and advocates for change and are willing to to walk away from the, but we've been doing adoptions this way, John, for 20 years. There's no need to change it, right? That are willing to, okay, let's try it. It may not work, but let's try it. We're open to trying it because we see what XYZ shelters are doing when they're doing this. You also have to have the right people, not just in that team that's managing the change process, but are also working in that area of the shelter. So for example, open adoptions, I'm not going to have a volunteer. It's, it's matching the right opportunities to the right people, right? I'm not going to have a volunteer working as an adoption assistant if the shelter's moving to open adoptions when this person is going to chastise and lecture someone because their pets aren't spayed and neutered. We could talk about spay neuter and how effective it is, but the point is, is you want to educate your community. You don't want people that are going to judge community members that are coming to adopt animals. And so again, it's part of, part of it goes back to educating your staff educating volunteers, matching the right people to the right roles in the shelter, making sure, again, if, if I were putting together an open adoption model with volunteers involved, I would want volunteers with good customer service who worked with different parts of the community, was open to working with anyone and everyone, right? Didn't have any notions about what an 
an appropriate adoption should look like, and then training them to be consistent in that process to assist the staff and not be a barrier to that adoption process. That's Kimberly Elman, another one of my superstar colleagues here at Best Friends. She's the manager of National Outreach Volunteer Programs. I'd like to thank both she and Rich for taking the time to share their expertise with us. At the top of the episode, I mentioned that we're hitting this topic hard for the next couple of weeks across the entire Best Friends Network ecosystem. It's like Shark Week, except it's actually educational and helpful. Head to the Best Friends Podcast website. You'll find links and information to everything you've ever wanted to know about roadblocks and how to get rid of them. I'd like to thank the producers of the podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, and Mark Peralta. I'm John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.